Hello, I'm Derek Wheatley and welcome to episode 175 of the Weekly Weekly Podcast. Thank you very much for joining us wherever you're doing so. Um, a big thank you to Jamie uh, who came on last week. Uh, we spoke about peatland and the bogs and sustainability and, and we talked about so much actually. We went into wildlife, we went into climate change, all that stuff. Jamie was, uh, my father, um, if you are listening Jamie, my father's put you into the top three episodes. Uh, and my mother thought you were brilliant as well. But they're, they're the main critics of this <laughs> of this podcast. So um, yeah, you did well. So thanks very much for that Jamie. Um, you can support us on Buy Me A Coffee if you like. Links in the description and all that. Um, let's get into this week's episode. Our guest this week is an art critic and uh, the author of the memoir, Negative Space, Christine Leach. How are you doing, Christine? I'm doing well, Derek. Um, do you know what I had to do? Right, uh, People who listen to this podcast a little bit will know that I have uh, some sort of panic sets in when I see a father in a name. Oh, yeah. OK. Right? <laughs> okay. So Did you have to look me up? Well, this is what happened. <laughs> I was getting a bit, I, I think I said it to someone, I can't remember, but I was getting a bit cocky about it. And then this morning I was like, I might just check it because it's kind of rude if I, how do you pronounce your name? So I did, went into something on YouTube and I saw someone interviewing you and they pronounced your name and I was like, oh, Christine, I never mind people asking me, honestly, and people get it wrong all the time. Yeah. So I've developed like, and actually that's an interesting thing about my name, Um, you know, because since I was a child, I've had to correct people and mm-hmm. that really teaches you something from when you're, there are <laughs> times when you, there are times when you just don't correct people, you just let them mm-hmm. get it wrong. And then there are other times when you do and you have to deal with somebody's response because sometimes people are, are slightly insulted or offended that you've corrected <laughs> them, even though it's your name. Yeah. You know, so yeah. it's a sort of a strange one to navigate. But I mean, I don't mind. It doesn't upset me. I, I try to correct people if I'm going to have a big chat with them. If it's somebody I've just, you know, picking up an order from a shop from, I, I wouldn't bother. Yeah, so, yeah. I think I, I've my mom has the same problem because she's she's Ita, I-T-A, but everybody calls her Ita. Course, and yeah, yeah okay. so yeah. It's, she does have the same problem and she I think she'd probably do the same as you, Christine, of the sense of, you know, if if it's if it if it's a connection between herself and someone else, then she'll correct it. But it's not really otherwise it's not really that um, you know, important. Um we always start in the same place, Christine. And if you don't mind, could you give us a short history of your upbringing, please? Okay, so I knew you were going to ask me this, and this yeah. is a hard one for me because when somebody says to me, "Where are you from?" I usually say, "Do you want the long or the short answer?" So that's entirely up to you. I'll try and give you the short, long answer. Okay. okay. So um, I, we moved around a lot when I was a kid, and I'm the oldest of four. Um, so there's 14 years between me and my youngest brother. So there's four of us with a 14 year gap. Um, my dad worked for IBM um, mm. his whole career and he was a customer service engineer. And because of that, um, the job of the customer service engineer is to serve a geographical patch. So okay. because of that, we moved with his job. So um, by the time I was six, I'd actually been to three primary schools and I'd lived in Waterford, Dublin and Kilkenny. Um Oh, and sorry, I'd lived in Waterford, Dublin, Kilkenny and Cork mm. by that stage. Um, and then we stayed in Kilkenny for almost 10 years um, in a place just outside, outside Castlecomer, which was really idyllic. I had this very idyllic um, upbringing there. Um, and then when I was a teenager, we moved to Cork City, well, just into the suburbs. And I stayed here and did my leaving search here. I moved in the middle of third year. Um, so again, two secondary schools then, as well as three primary schools. Um, and then I stayed and I went to UCC. Um, I started my radio career in UCC. I joined the radio station there, which was a student radio station. And that really set me on a path towards journalism. I think I was studying English and French. 
Um, and I applied to do a master's in DCU, which was a master's in journalism. So I moved to Dublin when I was 21. Uh, I did that master's. I, I got my first job reading the news on East Coast Radio in Bray, County Wicklow, um, reading the hourly bulletins of the local news. And then I got a job in RTE. Um, and I stayed in Dublin. My I got married. Um, both of my kids were born in Dublin. Um, and then I moved up the Galti Mountains and I stayed there for about 10 years. <laughs> And then I'm living in Cork City now. Um, I got divorced, uh, separated and divorced, and I moved back to Cork City really to be close to my family because by that stage I had two kids and they're teenagers now. I wanted to be near schools and things like yeah. that. So I feel like I've have a, had a very peripatetic, I like that word, um, upbringing. Mm. And also it's fed into my ideas about home. You know, what's yeah. home? Is home a fluid or flexible thing? I, I used to envy people who who could say, you know, when someone says, where are you from? They'd say, oh, I'm from here. You know, one answer. Yeah. My people are from here. And I think when Irish people ask you that, they kind of mean like, who are your people? And, and you know, where's your land? <laughs> That's the kind of thing that they mean. So I feel like I'm not really connected to anywhere. But my short answer is always, I live in Cork now. That's what I say when people want the yeah. short answer. I think what's funny about that, the way you described it was that you didn't, because, you know, I asked, obviously asked this question to everyone and they usually would say, so I'm from wherever, you know, Dublin, Cork. Yeah. and you didn't. And you you named the few places. I thought that was quite interesting. And then you to round it up with the idea of, you know, that idea. I think that's a very interesting one of like the flexibility of of home, like and where you would yeah. where you would consider, obviously consider now where you are. Um, and I suppose with kids as well and like being in schools and stuff, it adds something else to it. Like maybe it adds a bit more weight mm-hmm. to it. But it is interesting that you you didn't immediately say I'm from this place. I can't say that. I right. don't feel like I'm from any one place. Yeah. I honestly don't. Um, I, I would often say I grew up in Kilkenny because that was very formative you know in those years like I was there from when I was six till I was about 15 and those are really formative Mm -hmm. years you know um and it it was a rural upbringing we lived near a river and I was the type of kid who like took a book up into a tree and stayed there in the tree reading my book you know so and we did a lot of just wandering around in the woods there was great freedom in the 80s you know um and so I would often say I grew up in Kilkenny but then my teenage years were in Cork you know and that was really formative too and my 20s were in Dublin yeah um and my 30s were up the mountain and my my 40s seem to be in God. I'm moving around a good bit but I'm in Cork now so yeah excellent um so the other question and obviously this is another one I ask everybody um when did you first become aware of mental health this is another interesting question because it's not a phrase that was used when I was younger, obviously. And I know people say that to you when you when you ask them that question. Um, and so uh, I'm a very literal person. So, so when you say, when did you become aware of mental health? I want to give you a very literal <laughs> answer. Yeah. Um, I, I think. I've been trying to figure out how to answer this. Um, I I. I suppose one of maybe I'll start closer to the to now, like mm. one of the impetuses for writing my book was that when my marriage ended, I was hit by waves of anxiety mm. and 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 what I think were panic attacks. Now, this is not professionally diagnosed, but, you know, that all of the symptoms of having a panic attack Um and it reminded me of how I'd felt when I was small. Um, and I didn't know what those things were, but they were to do with anxiety about writing. I think to do with performance, you know, doing well, you know, about being yeah. a good girl, you know, achieving. 
Um, and it was the same feeling in my body. So I had this um, sort of, you know, and it's a thread that runs through my book, obviously, this anxiety around writing, but um, also about maybe trying to put language on things or trying to express something. And then also the idea of things that are unsaid being important and maybe festering there and causing a problem. So that's one answer. And then another answer, I suppose, is when I was in my early 20s, I was living in Rat Mines in Dublin and a friend of ours um, died in a car crash. Um, uh, well, he was hit by a car. Um, and um, that was a really difficult time. And I remember one of my close friends was going through a difficult time. And I don't know why I did this and I don't know where I got the idea from, but I actually went and looked for a number for a therapist for her. And I found the number and I gave it to her and I actually um, gave it to her while she was standing beside a telephone. We didn't have mobile phones yeah. and um, she was standing beside a landline. And I said, I really think you should ring this number. And I just handed it to her and I left the room and closed the door. And she did ring the number and she went to see the therapist. And I didn't even know if she would or and I'm not even sure why. And I didn't even know if it would be a good fit or I didn't even have any ideas about what therapy could or couldn't do. But I saw my friend was in pain and she wasn't OK. And I think the feeling was she's not OK and I don't have the tools to help her. Yeah. So in a way, maybe that was the start of it. But even then, I wouldn't have used the term mental health. I just yeah. felt my friend needed help and I didn't know how to help her. Um, and that's what I did. So, um, yeah, that's part of my relationship with mental health yeah. is that idea that they're that, to ask, to ask for help, to find somebody who can help, you know, Um but again, I think, you know, Irish people often don't talk easily about things. And I was feeling anxious about this podcast. And I was trying to figure out why. And I think yeah. it's because I knew you were going to ask me about mental health. And it's really hard to talk yeah. about. I think yeah. it. I think you're not the only one. And I and I noticed I was just talking to Jamie last week and he had never spoken about his uh, mental health, you know, to anyone like bar a couple of people, you know, close friends or, or, or family. And um you know, when I heard him talking about it, I was kind of thinking, I knew he hadn't spoken it before. And I was anxious for him because I could kind of feel that anxiety from it. And it's a look, it's a, it's a fairly common way to feel. But it's also now you'd like to think that people wouldn't be feeling like that anymore, would it? You know, that they could be because it is more in the, the lexicon. And, and, you know, even what you're saying about you gave that to your friend, the idea of the a therapist wouldn't have been talked about back you know 20 years ago late, this was the late 90s yeah so I don't even know where I got that idea I don't yeah. I don't know why I did that <laughs> but um you know years later she told me it had helped her and she said thank you you know and and I think um when when my marriage was ending I knew I knew when I needed help mm -hmm. you know I've spoken to therapists um um and I think maybe it's just that thing of knowing to ask for help and, and and one of the things about going to a therapist is you go into the room and you don't know what to say yeah <laughs> you know? that's true <laughs> you know? and you're and then you think oh but there's so much where would I begin mm. you know because yeah. if you're there it's because you do need somebody to, sure. to you know for sure um so you know I've learned a lot about myself um from from doing that and it was year, it was years later like you know 25 mm. years later whatever when when I ended up going to a therapist but um yeah, I think what you're saying about it being common and it should be more easy to talk about mental health. Mm. Um, it is easier to talk about mental health because I think the judgment has has dissipated. Yeah. You know, there's a lot more empathy out there. There's a much 
um, broader understanding that we all have times in our lives when you know things go a bit off you know we don't we don't sure. feel right yeah. you know and it's it's on a scale it's on a spectrum you can go right to a place where you're having a really really hard time and you're really not okay and then there's times when you know you're just you know we just need a bit of help you know so I don't think anybody escapes that actually mm. in their lives I really don't yeah. um, I agree yeah and I think... so I think there's a better understanding of the fact that this is just very normal this is this yeah. is being a human in the world right yeah so yeah it is and it's that whole thing of like we all have mental health that just can be good good mental health at times it can be bad mental health at times and no one to you know seek help if we need it um yeah so yeah. why did you why did you, you talked about journalism and stuff but what made you want to become an art critic Ooh, I, so again, these are hard questions. Okay, sorry. okay, so it's like I suppose like the simple answer is I feel like I'm doing what I'm meant to be doing when I'm doing it, right? Okay. So I, yeah. I, so when I'm doing that, I feel like I'm in the right place, you know. Yeah, of course. Um, uh, it makes sense to me, and I enjoy it. Um, and it's also a weird one because there are no jobs in art criticism in Ireland. It's not really a profession. I've yeah. been freelance um, the whole time I've worked as an art critic. It's been freelance. Um, so it's precarious and there's no job progression. There's no pensions. There's no you don't get a weekly salary to do it. Um, so in a way, it's like an awkward, problematic choice. You know, it's not an easy one. Um, um, but my mum is an artist so I suppose yeah. that's that's another thing I was brought up and my siblings too going into galleries as a very normal part of life and I I realized when I started writing about art in mainstream media for newspapers and doing radio work as well that an awful lot of people feel excluded from galleries they don't mm. think it's a place for them they they have possibly anxiety about crossing the threshold like am I allowed yeah. in this door is this space for me are people going to look at me you know are someone going to go what are you doing here you know so a lot of my motivation in doing my work as an art critic and choosing also to not write in specialist publications if at all possible to write in mainstream publications newspapers to be on the radio to do tv work if i can is to talk to a general audience that isn't necessarily an art world audience mm -hmm. you know and to try and open the doors like all of my work around being a critic was to try and demystify the language around it not to use that art speak to tell a story so to bring the journalism skills to bear so that I'm telling you a story and even if you never see this show and never encounter this artist's work if you've read the thing that I've written something might have opened up inside you to feel that you know you too could have a connection with an artwork even if it's not this art or this particular you know so it's kind of like this idea of the art critic as a conduit between mm -hmm. art and audience um, but it was always for me about opening it up as opposed to closing it down. I don't like the idea of this being an exclusive world. Only certain people can yeah. be in, you know. So uh, so that really. And, and, and also, I guess, because I was brought into galleries from when I was tiny. And my mum said I've been going to exhibitions since I was in the womb. That's what she said. So I feel at home every time I walk into a gallery. I feel at home. I'm that's, just really happy. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. the ideal, you know, for someone who loves it. And uh, like, I wonder, because when, when you seek kind of critics, uh, voices on, on something, whether it's a piece of art or, a, or an exhibition, or like, you know, if, if people are into films or they're, they're into music, yeah. I think it's very important. I found it very important growing up to, I've always been into music since I was quite young. And I, I often will listen to an album and kind of go, well, this is what I think of the album. But I do want another perspective, you know, 
And if I don't have like a friends around who listen to the same band or artists, whatever it might be, I will seek out from people I, I guess I trust within that industry. And I think the way you're describing it as someone who uh, wants to invite people into the world, you know, rather than for it to be, um, you know, a, a kind of snobbish and, you know, only people who are wearing, you know, dinner jackets can come in here. I think yeah. it's, I think, I think that's so important to someone who maybe doesn't understand what they're looking at, but can still appreciate. Like my thing about art is it's, it's something made by a human for other mm-hmm. humans, right? <laughs> that's what it is. That's right? It. And so is music. And so, is it, you know, so if you're a human, this was made by a human for other humans. Mm. So it is for you, right? You don't have to like it. It mightn't be your, yeah. to your taste. You might think it's bad or it doesn't execute itself well or whatever it is, but it is for you, you know, because, <laughs> you know, so that's like, that's one thing I think. And also the idea of being wrong. So we, and you know, actually a lot of anxiety comes from the idea of being wrong. What if I'm mm. wrong? You know, so what if I have the wrong opinion about this? Right? Yeah. What if I don't get it? And then people think I'm stupid. Right. Like, yeah. This is one of the things that happens. Right. And the idea that, you know, art is something that you can only get if you already know something. I don't. OK, look, you can get more the more you learn. Right. Mm-hmm. But as you said, the critic is, is should be part of opening a conversation. I think it's a conversation. I see yeah. it as a conversation. Right. And, and I really do feel that human beings have instinctive responses to things like color and form and shape. And, and this is true. You know, it's been proven. So if you are in a room full of blue paintings, you're going to feel a certain way. Yeah. Right. You just are. And there's nothing wrong with how you feel. Whatever way you feel is how you feel. But you are going to feel something, you know, so. And it's the same. I I guess one of the things that I've also been trying to do in my career is to open up that idea that we need to um, get more kids into galleries because kids Mm -hmm. are amazing in their responses. They don't censor themselves. They just go, you know, like that makes me feel angry or that makes me feel happy or, you know, and to start with feelings as well. Like so maybe to not start with the logical brain bit, just to start with feelings. How does this feel? Because I think we do that with music. Like, yeah. how do I feel? How do I feel when I hear this music, right? And we don't censor ourselves, you know? Um, and I do think as well that in Ireland, throughout school, from when you're very, very small, you're taught how to read a piece of text and analyze it, pull it apart, understand it, comprehension, right? And we do that with poetry and we do it with plays right through to the leaving search. Um and we don't do it with visual culture. Mm. Like we don't sit down and in the same way that we do with text, we don't get kids to analyze unless you're doing art for your leaving cert, say, yeah. in which case you might do. But, you know, as a general skill set, we don't teach children to pull apart, analyze, look at um, art, visual culture, anything, even advertising, you know. And mm. those are so useful skill sets to be able to say, what is this image saying to me, you know? That's really important. It's as important, I would say, as being able to understand what a piece of text is saying to you, because we live in, you know, in a visual world. Um, so I'd love to see, you know, interpreting a, a painting or a picture be, you know, as important as being able to write an essay about a poem. <laughs> That's yeah, but a standard that, thing. Yeah. And it's like it is the imagination anyway, you know, because like if if um, a piece of abstract art um, I'm just using as abstract because this is my limited knack, lack of, uh, you know, knowledge and art. But, but the idea that it can mean a lot of different things to different people. And, and that's that's kind of what I get from it. And um, expressionism and stuff like that. They're all kind of things where you can kind of pick things out that maybe only you can see. It's like looking at a, a cloud and someone can see a dog and then someone else can see if the fire engine. You know, exactly. it's that idea of, of, of but, but that's as much down to imagination as like taking apart a poem. 
Yeah, and it's also about who you are when you see it. So as a critic, like I'm really interested in the moment of encounter. That's what actually that's where the spark comes from for my writing. Right. So it's it's the moment of encountering the work. Um, now, you could be a critic who wants to write about the moment of of conception of the work. You might want to write about what the artist was thinking when they made it, the research they did or their background or, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I do include some of that in my writing. But the thing that makes me come alive and makes me interested in what is is that thing of what happens when one human meets this thing, another human made what happens then right and I'm really interested too in the idea of the critics word not being the final word like as you mm -hmm. said not being these people like stroking their chins going this is a good album this is a bad album you know <laughs> or whatever right so like to be able to have multiple voices to allow responses to be whatever they are you know um and also with the idea that if if say I write a negative review of an exhibition, that that's not also the end of my relationship with that artist or their work. Yeah. I may see their work again in five years time. And not only may the work be different, I might be different. The yeah. world might be different, you know, so everything has changed. And so maybe the moment of encounter is different, too. Right. Mm. So I'm interested in that being a fluid thing, not a fixed thing, you know, and, and the idea of things being fixed or not fixed is also a theme that runs through my book as well. And I think when I was writing the book, a lot of these things that have been threads throughout my career pull, pulled to the fore. And I started to understand that they really fed into the way I look at the world. And um, I suppose the kind of manifesto I'd write for myself if I was writing one as a critic, you know. Well, I, what I really enjoyed, I enjoyed a lot of things about the book, obviously, but what I really enjoyed about it was the fact that you did draw your art criticism into your memoir because obviously it's such a major part of your life. It's something that you love and you, you do all the time. And it would have been, well, I was going to say it would have been easy to write about just the memoir, but it obviously wouldn't have been. But, but the fact that you brought in that, you know, work side of it as well, why did you think that was important? Or is, that, is, it, is it just in the fact that it is such a huge part of your life? So for me, art isn't separate to life. And mm. writing is also not separate to my life. So a lot of the book came from notes I'd just written to myself or things I'd written on my phone or whatever, and that were never intended to be in a book. I, I wasn't intending to write a book. Um, but I write things down as a way to explain the world to myself um, and, and as a, a kind of anchor. I think I've used that mm. metaphor before, like these words help anchor me. So if I was feeling anxious, you know, sort of like the idea that you're almost not connected to the ground anymore, like you're flying off, yeah. right? Like I'm not grounded anymore. This isn't OK. So for me to put language on it, to put a sentence on it, to put words on it pulls me back down. It's mm. like I'm grounded again. And I was just thinking there when we were talking, I said to you, when I go into a gallery, I feel like I'm at home. I feel mm. like I'm home. And that is interesting because I've just I had just finished telling you that there isn't anywhere that's home. <laughs> I have moved around a lot. So, that, that. <laughs> so interesting. So, you know, anywhere in the world, I can go into a gallery and I'm home. I'm at home. I'm mm. home. But I'm also home when I stand in front of a painting. So I don't even have to be in a gallery, you know, anywhere. Yeah. If I'm in your house and you have a painting and I stand in front of it. So maybe that's I mean, that might say a lot about me and my childhood having moved around. A lot. But it does. But it also says a lot about your love for what you do, like in art in general. It's a beautiful thing to state that, like, you know, you feel at home in a gallery and that's where you're going to. You know, that's where you're yeah. maybe your next um assignment that's not the right word is it yeah that's a good word okay yeah, yeah, sure. but but you know what was interesting as well because everybody knows the kind of concept of fight or flight when it comes to maybe anxiety um or you know at worst i suppose panic attacks and stuff but what was you said in the in the book that writing caused you panic 
Right. And so this was, yeah. Yeah. But that's what, like, so, so when, as soon as I read that, I was like, how did you write the book? It's like, well, that's fight. That's not flight. Okay. So oof, there were quite a lot of things going on and I don't feel panicked anymore about writing. So okay. this is something has changed. Um, there's a, there's a, so that was really to do with how I felt when I was a kid. And I did describe um, in the book uh, some incidences when I was a kid, like maybe writing an essay for a competition or something like that, mm. where where I really felt panic, like um, panic in my body, you know, sweating, all that stuff. Um, and maybe it's a fear of getting it wrong. I think some of it for me was a fear of being exposed in a way, like showing my most important thing. Because when I think back to being a child, home for me was reading and books mm -hmm. so reading and books was home so words were home and so like I say to you now going to a gallery I feel at home and, and I read less than I used to when I was a kid I just devoured books I just read 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 so you know language was home so I think maybe if I could make words you know I had this idea of books being really magical and authors being incredible people who did this amazing magic with words you know made whole worlds um and I guess maybe one of my one of my ambitions is to be able to do that, even though I wouldn't have admitted it to myself, maybe even back then. But um, so the panic was to do with that. Mm. And when I first started writing art criticism as journalism, there was a time when I would just be overwhelmed by the task because it's actually quite a weird thing to do to put words on something that doesn't have words mm. and and to take something that is a picture turn it into language and then hope that when someone reads that language they also get a picture in their head then <laughs> it's very interesting act yeah. of translation um so there was that too but something has changed and when i wrote the book i know um I did an interview with Tanya Sweeney in The Independent when it came out. And she when I met her, she said, I felt like you wrote it in a fever dream, like it was written mm. in a fever dream because it has a propulsion. Like it, it's like, you know, I hesitate to say it's a page turner, but I know I know a lot of people read it very fast. Yeah, when they read yeah. It. yeah, I did. So, did you? Okay. Did, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, in so a, I know a lot of people who read it in one go when they read it. Well, I think I, I think it's what this is just obviously my, you know, uh, experience of reading it and i thought that like because you, you like it's obviously a memoir there's art criticism um there's what i would imagine and you can correct me if i'm wrong like a sense of almost like a release on your part because it's very difficult to write i would imagine <laughs> i was never married by the way but to write about something as personal as a marriage breakup yeah and also, I'm quite a private person. Like people who follow me on social media would know I'm only posting work things, really. I yeah. don't, don't talk about my my personal life at all. Um, so that was an odd thing to do. Um, it might tie back to the thing that you were saying there about me in interweaving the art criticism. It wasn't necessarily a choice to interweave the art criticism as much as this is this is this is. So this is what was going on in my life was that I was writing, but also the the panic about writing and identity and my identity as a writer, my identity as a person was shattered when my marriage ended. It's like, who who am I? You know, how did this happen? Well, everything I thought was real is not real anymore. Or the things I thought were fixed, you know, to use that word fixed, are not fixed. You know, the things that I thought were were um, maybe, you know, I think people get married. They think they'll be married forever. You know, yeah. to get married thinking this is it. This is this is who I'll be with. Um, you know, we'll be we'll be buried together yeah. <laughs> under the same headstone. You know, you, that's the idea you have, yeah. I guess, when you're when you get married. And then for that to suddenly not be the future 
is really um, like it, it's, it's completely it throws you completely. Um, and it's not just the practical things of, oh, my God, what will I do now? How will we like how will we practically undo this thing, which is a marriage with children and a house and all of these things? Um, it's also who am I? who am I you know so writing the memoir was also about saying to myself I'm a writer you know that's actually who I am I'm a writer and it was reclaiming that for myself I am a writer and a very strange thing happened which was I I, the way that I write now has just become I don't even know how to describe it but it's like I know what I'm doing (laughs) Okay. <laughs> if that sounds ridiculous after two and a half decades of doing this I mean I always knew what I was doing I yeah. suppose but I, but I feel now like I sit down and I go to work and it's like I actually described this to my therapist not so long ago as wrestling a snake so right. <laughs> when you're trying to tell a story in words and it's a complicated story it literally feels to me like wrestling with a snake wrestling yeah. a snake into a shape right so yeah. the snake has muscle and form and it's trying to do its own thing but if you can kind of maybe charm it or something and also use your own ambition around it, it, it that was like physically that's how it felt to me like writing a story because I edit and edit and edit as I'm going and I'm also crafting all the time when I'm writing so so I do this thing which I think of as combing through the text and I'm always looking for the cadence in the sentences and I, I'm thinking about how it would sound if you said it out loud and I've always written like that um and so to me, it's like you're, I'm wrestling this snake and then I'm going to get this snake into this really nice shape. Maybe it's more like a book of Kells type of thing, you know, like with yeah. all the knots and whatever, you know. And then it's gorgeous. It's the right shape. Right? But did you, <laughs> so, but you, but then going back then, because like, like you said, it's you know, a long time since you started writing. You didn't feel um, as comfortable. Was it like, was there a sense of like imposter syndrome there? Was it, you know, what was it that you felt before it that you didn't? feel as comfortable writing it wasn't imposter syndrome um no it wasn't imposter syndrome because I did feel like I was doing what I was meant to be doing yeah so that was that wasn't that um maybe it was my very own strong inner critic (laughs) telling me it wasn't good enough so not that I'm not in the right place it was I am in the right place I know I can do this but how can I make it brilliant? Because you might have noticed I'm a high achiever. So I was <laughs> in school, I was a really high achiever. So, you know, I really wanted to be really good at yeah. this. I wanted yeah. to be a really good critic. I wanted to be, you know. Um, so uh, I think the anxiety was about thinking I was failing at being good at okay. it. Not yeah. that I shouldn't have been doing it, but yeah. you know, how can I be better at it? Yeah. I don't know. It's it's quite complicated. It's not very, I don't have a simple answer for that. No, I, I, yeah, I guess not. Like it's, you know, uh, the imposter syndrome thing is kind of thrown out there and I've, I've experienced that so much and I still do, even though people keep telling me, you know, you're doing the right thing with whatever you're doing and it's it's just there. So I, I, I often ask about it on the podcast when people are have felt like a certain way about what they were doing. Um, There was something that I related to and I had spoken about this funny enough about six months ago to a friend. I hadn't talked about it on the podcast or anything. Mm. Uh, and you, you described, now my my experience is slightly different, but you described going to a mountaintop and screaming and screaming and screaming and screaming in your house and things like that. And I go, I haven't done it in a while, but I go to like my pillow on the bed and I'll put my face in the pillow and I'll scream. Now this would be at moments of like obviously heightened anxiety or certain lows that you might be feeling and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, at the time, like I'm guessing this wasn't something that you planned. You go, I'm going to go up that mountain and I'm going to scream. 
Why did you, was it, was it just a physical release? Oh gosh, there are layers to this. Yeah. Um, so one thing is, after my ex-husband moved out, we, we've always um, shared custody of the kids. So they've mm-hmm. moved between our two homes and they have a very good relationship with their dad. And, um, and so I found myself in this house, which had been a family home, um, quite frequently on my own without without the person who was no longer my husband and also yeah. without my kids. And this was like a, a building. We, we built a house. So we had, we designed and built a house and it was a building that was built for the four of us to be in. And I found myself in it by myself mm-hmm. quite frequently. And, and it was, it was, it was up the mountain. It was in the middle of nowhere. Um, and it was so silent. Like anybody who has kids knows when the kids leave the house and you're on your own in the house, it's like, whoo, my God, you know, it's like a vacuum, mm-hmm. like whoo, sudden silence, you know, and yeah. even if nobody was making any noise in the house, the no. presence of people in the building makes some sort of hum, whatever it is. So it was like a counter to the silence was just, to scream but also it was tied to this thing and this is also why I wrote the book I think this idea that women are meant to shut up and go quiet and not talk about these problems you know and um we did therapy for a while together for for a year actually um to see could we fix the marriage save the marriage you know um but during that entire time I didn't tell anybody what was going on so I I felt there had been the silencing of me and it was really and I mean it was a self-silencing I I didn't I just you know I I say in the book you know I had this idea that if we could save it then it would have been bad to tell people what had happened because yeah. you know people would have opinions then you know and you have this thing of like oh I don't want people to have opinions maybe you go through a bad patch you sort it out you carry on yeah. you know and then you don't want people going oh but didn't your marriage nearly end you know you did yeah. business right <laughs> so so there's a way in which you're like okay I need to keep this to myself. But then there's another part of it, which is not talking about it is bad for your mental health. Mm-hmm. Bad. It was bad for me. It, it was very bad for me. It made me really anxious. Um, it was one of the hardest times in my life. And so that was bad. Um, and then I had this idea that, you know, in Ireland, we expect families to stick together, keep the family thing in the family. Don't talk about it outside the family. Mm-hmm. We expect women, I think, to put up with a lot. I think it's a societal thing. And I said in the book, you know, that idea of stick together for the kids. Don't talk about it for the kids, you know, all this sort of stuff. And I was thinking, what if we did talk about it for the kids? Mm-hmm. What if we did? What if we didn't stay silent? What if because they too are going to grow up and become adults and encounter adult things in the world yeah. and relationships don't always last, you know, and even if it doesn't happen to them, it might happen to someone around them, you know, um, to understand that it's OK for things to break. Mm-hmm. Things do break. It's OK to be sad when things break. It's OK to have a hard time when things break. Um, and then there's you can move through it and go to the other side like that idea of resilience so so there was loads of things in the screaming it was like mm. I need to make a noise I have to talk about this and I was and, and this was what you're describing there the screaming in the house the screaming at the mountain that was in the period of time when I wasn't talking so I had right. to make a noise yeah but the book is me talking again yeah I'm talking now I'm gonna tell you this stuff right yeah. <laughs> so yeah I just I was I was just fascinated by that that I not so long ago spoken about the idea of I suppose mine was, uh, well, it was probably, like you said, layers. It's probably layers to mine too, but it felt at the time that it was like a physical re- release of the anxiety. Do you know, it was that kind of yeah. to, to, to rid myself of that. Now, whether it works or not, I don't know, but it feels good when you're in the middle of it, like when you're, when you're just screaming, well, it has you know. To be, 
it has to be adrenaline, right? As well. Yeah, so yeah. It has to be that, right? So it's like, and I describe in the book, like wringing my hands. And that was literally like, I know like ringing could be like holding your hands and ringing mm-hmm. them, but that was literally shaking, like shaking, shaking, right. shaking with my hands, shaking. And it's like adrenaline in the body. And as you said, you've got your your, your fight or flight or fright. Um, and also we have fawn now as a response mm. to, to trauma or to a, a dangerous situation where you might actually placate the person who's causing you the trauma, which seems like a counterintuitive thing. Yeah. But that's also recognized now. And so so the fawn thing is part of the silence. Yeah. I'm not going to make a noise now. I'm going to be quiet and careful so nothing else gets worse. Right. Yeah. Um, but if you do that, the adrenaline's still in your body. Like the, the flight and the fight, that's still in you somewhere. <laughs> you know, yeah. really, you know, so screaming, maybe that lets it out, right? Or yeah. like I described in the book, I had a friend who I used to ring and she'd be like, Christine, you need to drop and do 10 press-ups press ups and ring me back, right? Yeah, yeah. And I'd be like, okay, hang up the phone, 10 press-ups, ring her back. How do you feel? So she was saying, get it out of your body. Yeah. Get it out of your body, right? And the screaming is getting it out of your body, but it's also vocalizing, which I think is a really powerful thing to make a sound. Yeah. Like it's an animal thing, right? Oh, yeah. Make a sound. Yeah. I was so, like, I, I was reading about primal scream therapy. That, that yeah. doesn't seem to be, I don't know, I'm sure it's still around, but I, I, I got, um, I became aware of it through the fact that John Lennon did it. And I was kind of going, mm. oh, that would be amazing. But I actually went online to try and find someone to talk to about it. Like, but, you know, even to come on the podcast and talk about it, but it's very hard to get now. So I don't know if it went out like out of fashion. Um, but at the time, John Lennon seemed to get a lot from it, um, creatively it bit, as well as, you know. It feels a bit 70s, doesn't it? It's very 70s, but like, you know, <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't mind a bit of that, you know. Um, but, Me neither. <laughs> you know, but, but actually this, this ties in, and I didn't mean this. I'm, I'm never this good at linking stuff together. This ties in very well. You write songs, but don't sing them in front of people. <laughs> yeah. I Why know. is I'm that? Wor- I'm working on that. Oh, are you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Um. So actually, I'm I'm I've been thinking about sound in my work, you know, mm-hmm. because the sound is a theme, and and actually, just speaking of it, like I, I there's a chapter in my book which describes childbirth, some of my experience of childbirth, and the idea of making a noise or not making a noise, and I say mm-hmm. that I sang my daughter out, you know, yeah. like on this note, um, which was like an opening note, you know, like a like a a sound that would open, you know, um, and. So it's like it's not just the sound, it's what making the sound does to your body. Um yeah. the writing the songs, I after my marriage ended and my ex-husband moved out, I I had to drive quite a lot of places um at the time. And I started to listen to a lot more music than I had been listening to uh in the recent past. And I started singing in the car, like really loud, really, really loud. <laughs> yeah. You know. <laughs> like and it would go from like singing I'm still standing like John to you know singing these teary teary like crying sort of ballads about how awful everything was you know and so so I was singing to myself in the car and then I started writing these things which turned into song lyrics which are in the book um but it's connected to the panic thing so I can sing on my own I can sing to my kids um, I can sometimes sing to my family. I, I can stand on a stage and talk till the cows come home if you give mm. me a microphone. But if you stand on me on a stage and you want me to sing, I'm going to start panicking. Yeah. But I love to karaoke. So I'll karaoke okay. in a room with nobody, right. like with just friends or whatever. Right. So that's yeah. fine. So I, it's something to do with making noise, not making noise. And I think possibly to do with being afraid of making a mistake, because when you sing, yeah. if you hit the wrong note, everyone's going to know, yeah. right? And you can't fix it. So when I'm writing, I can go back and fix a sentence, so, you know, I can craft it or whatever. If you're singing live in the moment, 
and you hit the wrong note, mm. then you've hit the wrong note. That's yeah. what's happened. So yeah. I think it's to do with like becoming comfortable with getting things wrong or that kind of stuff. I am. I'm still working on those songs. I'm going to turn them into songs. Good. <laughs> going to become songs. Yeah. I mean, do you know what's funny about the mistake thing? And this is like I, I was in a band a long time ago and I, I, I do I, on my Instagram. Sometimes I'll sing a song and I'll post it. Right. And it's like, I don't think I have a great singing voice, but, you know, I, I can hold a tune, as they say. Now, I, I listen to um, Radiohead a lot. And I, and I know Tom York uh, of Radiohead, his voice cracks a lot, but it actually yeah. cracks. It cracks live, but it cracks on the albums as well. And he doesn't fix it. So mm-hmm. that little like, you know, high pitched uh, squeal almost like that's not supposed to be there. He leaves it in. So I got started thinking like be comfortable in that like this is what me that you know uh, my getting out of my comfort zone now is getting back on the guitar and singing into a into a phone and like putting it up and if my voice breaks well then it breaks and then like you know so what but in saying that it's easier to do that onto a camera than it is when you're standing on a stage so you know i I think it's the the public thing isn't it yeah live public thing but you know it's the crack in the voice that we love yeah that's what makes it human yeah, like you that know, is true. this is a human singing you something that they're feeling, right? Yeah. Like you don't want something that sounds perfect. You don't mm. want the thing that's going to get them 100% in their in their music academy exam, right? <laughs> you don't really want that. What you want is somebody feeling something so intensely that maybe their voice does crack, you know? Yeah. Or maybe they miss the breath or maybe, you know, and actually you've just reminded me I sang at my sister's wedding not too long what ago. I did. Yeah. Um, And so it's weird because I have stepped up to the plate and sung, you know, if people have asked me to in the past at things. But now this was a very small wedding, only about 30 people there. Um, My sister got married in London um, not too long ago. Um, But I I did. I sang at my sister's wedding. She asked me to sing The Voyage, the Christy Moore song. Right. So um, I did that and it was a small group of people and that was fine. But I actually forgot the words at one point. Um, just before I think the second verse, I just did a blank and it was weird because I didn't panic. I just yeah. waited. I just waited a second and maybe there was like two beats too much. And then the words came to me and I kept singing. And afterwards they said to my daughter, oh my God, I forgot the words for a second. And she said, yeah, I noticed, but I wasn't going to say. <laughs> oh, they'll always notice. Yeah. it's what that. <laughs> and then my dad said to me, yeah, he said, I was thinking, does anyone know the words? Can they shout them up to her? Because there was a moment of discomfort, but I yeah. got up before everyone got so uncomfortable that they were you like, say- oh, hell. <laughs> you say the day but like it, it would be remiss of me not to ask you what is your go-to karaoke song then oh my god i've loads oh dear I've loads. I you're I've all right loads. i've loads of loads i don't have one single one um well that that's that's yeah. a good thing though because it's not like look people will think i can only sing this song well so this is the one i will always have to do but if you've got loads then that's good. I have loads. I'll do like 80s pop. I'll do like whatever. All yeah, whatever's in there. I love a good ballad. I like a song with a story. Love a song yeah. with a story. So that, I, that's for me. And I think that's the narrative thing. You know, I want to tell a story when I'm singing. So, so that's I get it. that. Yeah. I, there was there was something that you uh, said um, in the book um, that was kind of stuck with me. And it's like it's from 2021, I should say. So my marriage is broken. I have broken something in myself, too. And it is good. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the thing that was holding me back right that's, that's what that, I that broke yeah and that, to be brave yeah. you know like it's the, it's all of those things that people say in a sort of pat way like what would you do if you weren't afraid mm. that's a profound question actually yeah what would you do if you weren't afraid um, 
And I read, um, I was reading a lot about writing and, you know, kind of looking at writers on Twitter and things and stuff. And um, I don't remember who said this, unfortunately, but there was a writer who said, um, write home like you're never coming back. Mm-hmm. And that phrase made me think, oh, wow, okay. If I can tell one story, what's the most important story to tell right now, you yeah. know? And there was another one which was, um, and this has been said before, and I don't know who said it originally, but um, that you should write as, uh, you should write the thing you wouldn't want your parents to read. Okay, yeah, there, yeah. <laughs> that's what yeah. they say. So that's going to be your best writing. Okay. Um, and I had actually done, I'd, I'd written an essay for an artist called Philip Moss, who's based in um, Donegal. And he had made a body of work. I'd gone up to visit him as a studio in Donegal and he'd made a body of work um, about his childhood. And he'd had he had had a difficult time in his childhood. And when I talked to him, he said um, this is work that he'd been waiting to make because he didn't want to upset his mum. And um, I think he was he's in his 60s, I think. I hope I got that right. Um, And he was thinking, well, I can only make this art if my mum isn't around anymore. Um, But as he got older and older, he realised maybe he would be the one who wasn't around and maybe he would never get to make the art. Maybe his mum would be there longer than him, you know. And so he was talking about that and he he said he realised if you if you've got something you need to do and something you need to make, you got to do it now, you know. But the counter to that is there's a right time. I couldn't have written this book at any other time in my life well for obvious reasons because the events in it hadn't happened but also I wasn't this person at any Mm. other time in my life and when the book was commissioned it was actually commissioned as a book of eight essays and it became a memoir because the eight essays and it is in eight chapters which you could read as eight essays if you want to but it became a memoir because when the eight essays were laid out it it, it read like a book you know you you could read it in that way but I also just speaking of songs and and music and everything I thought of it as an album of eight songs oh really I was thinking about yeah because you know like the thing that happens in the book is that I get a text message to say that my husband has been cheating on me right and this sort of moment in the book is like a to me it's like a drum being hit it's like Mm -hmm. bang right and that is a beat that repeats at stages throughout the book as a kind of like, bang, this happened, bang, this happened, mm. you know? And I thought of it like a rhythm in the book. And I was thinking of like, when I was writing, I was like, I'm telling the same story over and over here. This is the same story, just told eight times in eight different ways, right? And and I thought, what what format allows you to do that? Well, actually an album, an album of eight songs mm. lets you tell the same story in all of those eight songs, but slightly differently from a slightly different angle, you know? So I was thinking about that and maybe that was sort of, and also the idea that women have permission to, you know, sing about heartache yeah women have permission yeah. to be you know songstresses who write like from dolly parton to you know taylor swift like you can sing about your relationship breakups yeah. you're allowed to do that right that's like a space in which women are allowed to have this voice you know so maybe part of that tradition or idea yeah maybe i, I if you don't mind can i read out a piece that you wrote in the uh, in the book and it's um i have a photo of it uh i just thought it was an amazing piece of um of writing so you're you're at a um, exhibition of William McKeown's um, uh, a tribute show. Um, so it's what you said was, uh, sometimes art can make you want to disappear, not in a bad way. Sometimes standing in front of a painting can remind you, you sorry, can remind you so overwhelmingly of the way in which we are all part of a bigger whole that it seems to offer the possibility of a kind of painless exploration, an embrace that might simply absorb you into obliteration, but into everything. It is rare, but sometimes art can remind you of your own insignificance without making you feel at all small. William McKeown's art did that. Mm. So 
the reason I loved it so much was because immediately it made me want to go and look at William McKeown's work. Uh, did you go and have a look? I did. And that like and that that's the thing, I suppose, going back to what we started at, you know, the beginning, I wouldn't have known of William McKeown. And yeah. when you wrote about it and that's that's like um, I, my favorite. I've said it on here a number of times. My favorite painting is um, the scream. I just because I, I, mm-hmm. I know the story behind it of the anxiety and the on the pier and all that and it, it kind of appealed to me in that way but I just like it um, it's that's the way it's painted as well that it's not this perfection of a face you know it's it's everything is like a swirl mm-hmm. and when you wrote about that like it uh, it just reminded me of how I feel when I'm looking at it but you just wrote it in a better way than I'd be able to right. you know in, the, in that <laughs> sense like and, and I just thought that like that sums up perfectly what it is to stand in front of something that that's that is that beautiful or meaningful to you yeah and that's why people cry in front of Rothko's you know Mm -hmm. like people cry in front of paintings um and William McKeown makes these um what look like abstract but you know they they could be pictures of sky pieces Mm -hmm. of sky like have this beautiful graduation and he's made these like uh, uplifting hope paintings they're called you know but then also these other paintings that are black Black paintings, mm. dark, dark black paintings, and also beautiful little drawings of wildflowers. Um, and so for me in his work, there's those extremes of mental health from, you know, from pure joy and that feeling which you get when you're a kid and you lie down in the grass and it's just just like posing around and you're looking at a daisy and there's nothing else there. You know, that's, yeah. that's got all your attention. And then this utter darkness that we can feel sometimes, you know, Um and that idea that you could disappear into a painting is definitely something that has stuck with me or disappear into an artwork. Mm. And it happens with sound, though. You know, if you go to a really like listen to a really good piece of sound art or go to a very immersive installation, it's like you disappear in there. You become yeah. one with it, you know, and that's a remarkable thing when an artist can do that for you. And again, it's like it makes you feel totally connected, but also almost like you've sort of vaporized it's yeah it's pretty interesting isn't it? it is and it's <laughs> i find it it can happen in films as well like you, you get so absorbed mm-hmm. in the film the story and everything about it that when the credits start rolling you're in a daze and you're kind of thinking like oh i didn't think i did i never thought of what i was going to do when that ended it felt it feels so bizarre like that feeling of something that's can draw you so in and that's like Art in every sense is like that, you know, and, you know, I feel kind of bad for the people who maybe haven't been down those routes yet with regards to music or art or whatever you, you may be into. Um, so speaking of that, see, I've done another link now. I'm on a roll. Um, so, so Christine, when you weren't uh, like, again, this question is probably redundant for you, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, what do you like to do in your spare time? I have, a, I have a curious hobby that is um, okay. not really a hobby but um, no I do I do do yoga and I trained as a yoga yeah. teacher and all those kind of things but like you know that's that's the thing I do um and I love to walk walking I love walking but um this is the, it's like when I was a kid what I loved to do was rearrange my books on the shelves right yes I do less of that now but the thing that makes me utterly happy like totally in my zone really delighted with myself um nowadays okay. moving the art on the walls in my house around so I could just get entirely lost in rehanging things on the wall moving everything around and it's the thing that kind of I, I 
I've, I'm just delighted with myself when I'm doing that. Okay. <laughs> I have a friend who's like, how can you keep moving things? Aren't you always like hammering nails? And I have a drill, you know, and I'm putting in the roll plugs and everything. I just and my walls are full of like redundant nails and screws hanging in places where you can't you can't use them anymore because I've moved a big picture or I have two small ones mm. or whatever. But moving the art around makes me so happy it's like putting on an exhibition and people come into the house and they're like oh is this a new thing and I'm like no that's not new I just moved it because you see it again you see it new because it's yeah. somewhere new so that makes me happy but it all, <laughs> ask it. me what do you want to do in your spare time just move things around but I mean once it's done it's done like it takes however long I might do it for an hour and then it's done and I won't do it again for months you know but um, yeah. But I like it because it is is it also a sense of like the house is changing too yeah yeah. And Which maybe that's nice. tied to my notion of not wanting things to be fixed because I'm a terrible mm. one for moving the furniture too. I move the furniture around. So I'm not like, oh, the sofa belongs there. That's what yeah. the sofa is, right? No, I'm like, oh no, how what if the sofa was over here? You know, so I move often enormous pieces of furniture by myself, wardrobes and all sorts of things. And my mum used to do that when I was small as well. I like moving things around. I like arranging my space. Yeah. <laughs> that's something that makes yeah. me happy. So I like I'm that. Sh- I'm sure people get that from gardening and all sorts of other things. And I'm actually quite messy. So um, like the, the art is going to be amazing. And all the houses I've ever lived in, the first thing I've done is hung up stuff, hung stuff up on the walls, yeah. hung my stuff on the walls, you know. So like I moved to Cork and I was renting for a year and a half with the kids and we moved into a rented house and it had things on the walls. First thing I did before I even unpacked like a spoon or a fork was I took the stuff down and unbubble wrapped my stuff and hung it up. And then I like it was it. home. Yeah, then yeah. I was home. Yeah. And it didn't matter that everything else was in boxes and we'd no clothes. You know, it's like now we're home. Right? Of course. And yeah. I, I get it. Like, and my problem is, so I have, you know, some film posters and stuff on the wall. And yeah, I can see them. Yeah. And I, my friend made them for me. And like my favorite film, like people are going to be so sick of me telling, telling people is 12 Angry Men. But it's up there. OK, so I think it should be here, even though I love Network is probably my second favorite film. So I want to swap them, but I have OCD. So when I think of it, like in the sense of what's the big deal, right? So that's in my head. But yeah. what I'm thinking about it, the big deal is like, it's not how it should be or not how it's looked for ages. So oh, yeah. I'm very neat, as you would imagine, with someone OCD. So everything is lined up along here and stuff like that. I'd love to do what you're doing because it sounds, it sounds great. Like how would that look there and that there and that, you know, but maybe I need to build up to it. It might just take a bit of a build up, I think, but I'll get there in the end, you know. I'll but... tell you, the thing that might encourage you is the reward. The reward mm. of the thing being in a new place is that you see it in a way you didn't see it before. And it's not just yeah. that the light falls on it differently or whatever. It's that you walk into the room and the thing that's in front of you is, is, is you know, I mean, you might miss your old poster. You might be like, oh, I wish. But that's, you know what? You can just move it back. It's okay. That's true. That's, <laughs> that's, that's true. Just stay the way you did it. You can move it and be like, mm, I don't like that. I'm going back to the way it was. That's fine, right? Yeah, and it's not like I'd need to do anything different with nails or like you might have to do you sometimes. See? You don't yeah. have to get the drill out. Like I don't have to do the drill thing, which is great. But look, honestly, Christine, that's the first time someone's uh, said about reorganizing. It's something they love to do. And I, I'm here for it. I'll be honest. I'm here for it. Um, yeah. Where uh, can people find you, Christine? Where can they find the book? Ooh, well, Negative Space is the name of the book and yep. it's available all over the place. Um, I often send people to kenny's.ie because they ship for free in Ireland and they ship worldwide. 
So if you want to buy it anywhere that isn't in Ireland, you can get it easily from Kenny's.ie. But you can get it from Eason's and Waterstones and all over the place and um, the dreaded Amazon as well. Um, it's available on ebook. You can get it on your Kindle. Um, and if you have a local bookshop, if you go in and just ask them to order you a copy, if they don't have it, that would be amazing. I love when people ask their local bookshop to order a copy. Absolutely. Um, yeah. That's it. And uh, yeah, I, I, my writing about art appears in the Sunday Times. I'm doing a piece for the RTE website at the moment. Um, so we do a lot of work for RTE as well. Um, I've just written another book for the RHA, which is coming out in October. So a bit of a delay on that one, but it's coming out in October. Possibly a slightly more art world book, but it's full of great stories. It's about the the personalities that have shaped the Royal Liberian Academy over the last 200 years. So it's driven by people more than art. So it's interesting. There's politics and falling out and all sorts of things. Well, my (laughs) favourite. But but honestly, I'm not just saying this because we we are chatting, but... um, People should definitely check out Negative Space. It's an excellent read. Thank you. Because of the fact we mentioned a number of times, it's about a numerous different things that kind of come together. And I, I, I thought it was fascinating. Um, and uh, I thank you so much, Christine, for coming on because uh, it was a it was a brilliant chat. Thank you so much. It was great to be here. Oh, it's great to hear it. Listen, if you wouldn't mind, I say this to everyone. People are sick of hearing me. But if you stick around for one minute, I'll close it out. I'll get a quick photo mad the mad thing is this, this is coming out tomorrow it's never that quick Ooh, but yeah but tight. my i messed everything up i'll be honest my schedule was in a in a my mom said it's the problem with calling it the weekly weekly you have to keep putting out once a week and oh you yeah, see i put you, that pressure kinda, yeah yeah you found yourself into that one didn't you i did a little bit but look i really enjoy chatting to people that i haven't spoken to before about interesting things so it, it, there's a, there's a, re- a high reward for it like you know but um listen i'll close this out uh christine and we'll we'll get a we'll get a photo I have to thank the usual people, uh, John, for all the technical side of things that I'm unwilling um, to learn. And uh, I say I'm willing, I'm incapable of learning. It's probably a better way to put it. I always thank my mom, my dad, my granddad. Chat my granddad the other day on uh, FaceTime, 96 years old and using FaceTime. I love it. Um, Jaron Calvin for the music and for the uh, images, graphics, whatever you want to call them. YouTube, subscribe if you would. Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, um, Christine is also on Twitter. That's also worth pointing out. Oh, yeah, out. you can yeah. find me on Twitter and Instagram as well. And I joined TikTok, which I'm not a big TikToker, <laughs> but I'm there. Well, so, yeah, I, I don't know what that is. I know what it is, but I, I like some people keep saying you should go on to TikTok. But I don't. What would I put on TikTok? Like, I don't know what to do. I don't know. Like people say, oh, book talk is a big thing. So the writers uh, should be on TikTok, you know, because of book talk. But um, I, I'm quite a big tweeter um, and I, I, I like Instagram. It's friendlier. But um, Instagram is friendlier. Anything's friendlier than Twitter, to be fair. Um, true. <laughs> we're also on Spotify, Apple Anchor, Google Podcasts, all the other ones. Um, most importantly, thanks everyone for, for tuning in uh, wherever you are, YouTube, uh, all the other ones. And uh, once again, Christine, thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, everyone. See you next week. Bye.